Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Roger Webb. This is always this week that we remember the, uh, we often, it's often called the Passion Week, the, the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry in his uh, physical body anyway. And it always, it never ceases to amaze me as I think about the big picture of this week and, and, and the events that happened. The contrast between the events of Palm Sunday and the events of Good Friday. I was thinking a little bit about this earlier and, and wondering about how, what I should mention, speak about. And, and one of the things that, that always gets, that was impressed upon me at that time was the fact that while everybody around Jesus was rejoicing, he was rather sad on Palm Sunday. And then while everybody was mourning, after the res at the resurrection, everybody, the Lord was rejoicing because he didn't have a merely earthly outlook, but he had a, a much broader, much more heavenly perspective. And I thought about speaking about that, but it just, I just, at this time, I couldn't push it, I couldn't formulate it, and, and I thought, well, the Lord's closing off that thought. What should I have? And, and again, but the Lord impressed upon me just the, the distinction, the contrast between the events of Palm Sunday when everybody is rejoicing, Hosanna in the highest, and the, the events of Good Friday, crucify him! The same, many of the same people were involved in both events. And earlier in the week, Joanna emailed me this, this joke that was sent to her, and, and I thought it well illustrated the point. The 2,000-member Baptist church was filled to overflowing capacity one Sunday morning. The preacher was ready to start the service when two men dressed in long black coats and black hats entered through the rear of the church. One of the two men walked to the middle of the church while the other stayed in the back of the church. They both then reached under their coats and drew out automatic weapons. The one in the middle announced, Everybody willing to take a bullet for Jesus, stay in your seat. Well, naturally, the pews emptied, followed by the choir. The deacons ran out the door followed by the choir director and the assistant pastor. After a few moments, there were about 20 people left sitting in the church. The preacher was holding steady in the pulpit. Then the men put their weapons away and said gently to the preacher, All right, pastor, the hypocrites are gone now. You can begin the service. And that would really, at this point in time, be rather far-fetched in our country. But, you know, that's not very far-fetched in other countries. And it's a very sobering thought that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who daily have to fear for their earthly life 
because of their testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. The old adage, if being a Christian were a capital offense, would there be enough evidence to con convict you of the crime? Well, the topic is false disciples. What are they like? How does Jesus respond to them? And finally, what is the result of their, of their profession? And going back to the Passion Week distinction, the Passion Week uh, dichotomy, if you will, there is, there is a certain argument, and there is some valid validity to it, that many of those who were entering the city on, on Palm Sunday, on that, on that first day of the week, were Galileans along with the Lord Jesus. And, and as they entered, they saw Jesus, who was also Galilean, as sort of a hometown hero. And they were rejoicing, and they were, they were applauding him. Whereas many who stood before Pilate's built house and shouted, crucify him, would have been Judean. And so there was some, some factional prejudice. He would have been viewed as an outsider, as somebody who was not part of the elite and therefore really did not belong to them. <clears throat> but that still does not explain the entire mob. Many who lauded him on Palm Sunday called for his crucifixion just four days later. And it points out just how fickle and how easily bent towards sin the human heart really is. Now, this is not a unique situation. This is a situation that is actually consistent through Scripture. How many people were rejoicing at the Exodus as they left Egypt, as they left bondage, right? Only to get angry at Moses when the Red Sea was in front of him and Pharaoh's army was behind him. And then when they were delivered through the Red Sea and the, the sea drowned Pharaoh's army, how many of those same people were then rejoicing and singing with Miriam the song of victory? Only a few days later to be ready to stone Moses to death because they ran out of water. Back and forth and back and forth. And don't think <coughs> that in our unregenerate state, you and I would have fared any better. It takes the leading of the Holy Spirit, the maturity grounded in the Word of God and nourished by faith, not to be carried about by every wind of doctrine, not to be pushed here and there and led to do this and that and the other thing, led to be able to, to, to follow what the crowd does, but to stand firm for the Lord. Well, today we want to look at those false disciples. So turn with me, which I should have mentioned earlier, to Mark chapter 11. And this is an opportune time for take some water. Thank you, Hans. Mark chapter 11 and verse 9. This, of course, is the triumphal entry. The Lord Jesus coming into Jerusalem. 
Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. <coughs> Those who were lauding Jesus on the road to Jerusalem were themselves going to the feast of Passover. They were fulfilling the tenets of their religion. The first characteristic that we want to see about false disciples is they're religious. These people were taught much about what to expect in Messiah, what to look for in, the, in their Messiah. And they were taught much that was true. Yet they were also taught much that was not true. And the trouble is that the, the Jews, as they held to their beliefs, they even held even to false beliefs, even when they were shown to be false. Time after time after time, and we'll see this later on in the message, the Lord Jesus dealt with these people, dealt with their false ideas. Even the twelve had false concepts about what was going on, what the Lord Jesus was going to do, what his exact ministry was. Now, religious people are always taught their various beliefs. And that is not wrong in and of itself. It was wrong, if it was wrong in and of itself, it would be wrong for us doing what we are doing here. Of course it's not wrong to be taught Scripture. It's, of course it's not wrong to be taught the tenets of whatever particular religion you have. The problem is when there's false beliefs involved. And those false beliefs begin to develop expectations from God. These false beliefs become an expectation from God. And we see a hint of that in verse 10. When they said, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now what was the, the concept, what was the general consensus of belief of the Jews of the coming kingdom. We'll see this time and again throughout this message, that the Jews were looking for a political overthrow of Rome. They were looking to find this conquering hero to wipe out the oppression of Rome and set Israel up as the chief nation on this earth. Now, as we know from Romans, which is not really part of this message, we know from Rome, or Romans that someday Israel will be. And if, as Paul talks about in Romans, if the putting away of Israel is the blessing of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Because if the fruit is bad, the putting away of Israel, and that leads to blessing, how much more when the fruit is good? How much of a tremendous blessing will the people of Israel be when they're right with God, when they're right with the Lord, and they fulfill the purpose for which God has chosen them? What a blessed time that's going to be. But for now, for now, it's not because of a major issue that these people failed to realize. The expectation that they were looking for was this powerful warrior and political reformer. And when they saw Jesus doing many mighty miracles, they hoped that he would overthrow the power of Rome. 
but they conveniently neglected the scriptures concerning their own sin and defilement. And so it is with all false believers. Not only are they religious, but the second characteristic of false believers is the fact that they willfully neglect the scriptures which do not appeal to them and accentuate those passages that please their sinful nature. Now this is an easy thing to do. Isn't it nice to look at verses like, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now doesn't that mean that if you become a Christian, everything is going to become wonderful, and your life will be smooth as glass. No problems, no hardships. Just come to Jesus. Jesus has a wonderful life planned for you if you just come to Him. Or another one. Whatsoever ye ask in my name, I will give it you. Well, that proves that we can take a grocery list of things that we want to God, and He'll dole them out just like Santa Claus, right? Isn't that the way God treats Christians? Where do I get in that line? But these things are not Christianity. The snickers that everybody mentioned and the smiles on everybody's faces that I'm seeing, you know that that's not true. I say that cautiously. Yes, they are true within the proper context. But in the context of an unlimited guarantee, no way. But that does bring us to the third characteristic. When these false disciples do not get their wishes, they quickly turn against the truth and reject the Lord. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in the shoes of the people who were looking for this tremendous warrior, this, this redeemer, this powerful anarchist who was going to overthrow Rome. Imagine how they reacted when, they were, when the Lord Jesus was presented by Pilate, beaten, bloodied, humiliated, and ultimately crucified. What happened to their hero? What they failed to realize, what so many people fail to realize, is that there is a more insidious tyrant than Rome. There is a more overbearing taskmaster than political oppression, and that is called sin. And on top of that, we have Satan. We don't need Satan to sin. He just sort of goads us on and helps us along. But we can take care of the problem. We can take care of the issue. We can sin without his goading at any time. <coughs> but rather than question them themselves and re-examine their belief, these individuals rejected the Lord Jesus. There were thousands of, him, of them thronging Jesus, right? How many were in the upper room 
at the day of Pentecost. How many were there when push came to shove, when it came down to brass tacks, when they were expecting any moment for the Romans or the, the, the Jewish leaders to break in upon them and, and take them all away to prison. When it came right down to standing with a backbone and saying, here I can stand, I can do no other. So help me God. How many were there? When people make a false profession of faith in Christ, they come with their own expectations as to what he will do for them based on some religious background, whether they were formally taught it or they heard it by word of mouth. And then they soon become disenchanted with true Christianity because they don't get all that they want or they can't continue the, their own, their, to live the sinful life that they had before. And so what do they do? They leave. They go back to their sinful life or worse, remain a plague to the local church by sitting and doing nothing and thinking that they're Christians. This is why the Lord Jesus says what he does in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I know your works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot, but since thou art neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of thy mouth. Again, excuse me for quoting the King James. It says the same thing in the NIV. Or turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, you know, I don't know if you've heard this. This is not um, general knowledge. Why there are, why we have the, the chapter and verse uh, divisions we have in the Bible. Well, it's as uh, the translator was riding his horse, every time the horse took a step and he was reading the scripture on his horse, that's where he put a verse division. And whenever the horse stumbled, that was where, the, where a chapter division ended up. John chapter 3 is one of the worst chapter divisions in the entire Bible. Look at the end of chapter 2. Starting in verses, well, let's, let's back up to uh, verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled that he had said, Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus didn't commit himself to these false disciples, all these professions of faith about him. He didn't commit himself to them because he knew that they were just that, false disciples. Now, scratch out chapter 3 so that when you read this passage, you don't stop at verse, at, at the, at verse 25 and you read on through 3.1. Let's, let's start reading in verse 25. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Jews named Nicodemus. 
Jesus did not commit himself to all these professions of faith because he knew how shallow, how empty, how vacuous these people were. But there was a man named Nicodemus. And this man needed development. He needed teaching. He needed help. But his faith was not empty. But the real point that I'm trying to make here is the Lord Jesus knows any heart. Why an individual makes a profession of faith, when they make a profession of faith, and what the reality of that heart is. Let's continue on in the book of John. Turn over to Chapter 6. How does Jesus treat these individuals? Excuse me. These individuals who make a profession of faith, but then they make it on a false premise. They make it with false expectations. They make it for because it was something that the crowd is expecting of them? How does Jesus treat them? In John chapter 6, and we're not going to take the time to read this whole passage, we're going to be looking at the passage from chapter 22 through 69. It is an extensive passage, and... Uh, yeah, I don't think you guys want to be here till around 1.30 or 2. Is there somebody to uh, take the place of Eutychus in the window to fall down? <laughs> well, I'm not Paul, so... Nevertheless, in chapter 6, verse 22, this is... Just to give you the context, this is after Jesus had fed the 5,000. And he separated himself from all those people, and he sent his disciples back over the Sea of Galilee through the raging storm. And, of course, the Lord Jesus then walked on the water that night and plucked Peter out of the Sea of Galilee and said, Peter, you almost had it. You had it for a second. And he dragged him out. Can you see him standing by the side of the boat, grabbing Peter's shirt collar and throwing him into the boat and then stepping into the boat with him? And then immediately the boat's at the other shore. But what was happening next? The next day, verse 22, the crowds that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus was not, had not entered into it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So here they are, they're in a frenzy. They're looking for Jesus. They can't find him. They know he didn't leave on a boat with the disciples, but they can't find him anywhere. What happened to him? Where is he? They finally found him. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, doesn't that take a pin and bust their bubble? What were they doing? They're after Jesus. They're, they're, 
They're running after him. They're rabid. They want to get to him so they can make him king. Look at verses 15 and 14 and 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is a prophet who should come into the world. Jesus knew that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This passage always blows my mind. When has anybody ever heard of a monarchy whose king is elected by the people and for the people? In a monarchy, how does a monarch take the throne? A higher power gives that monarch his authority to reign. The people don't give authority to a king to reign. In a monarchy, the power resides in the king, not in the people. But these people are trying to make him king? That's not how you treat a king. You don't go into a king's court and say, King, this is what I want you to do. What would have happened if Esther had said that to King Ahasuerus? Yeah, I don't think he would have been too pleased to see her. That's not how you approach a king. If he's a king, it's, what would you have me do? Period. I am your servant. You are my king, as we sang earlier. Reign in me. Well, we were singing that song. I was thinking, yeah, the Lord does reign in material creation. He does reign in the animals. He does reign everywhere else, but in this particular sinful heart made after his image. He does reign, and someday he will reign perfectly on this earth. But it's not people that's going to put him there. But Jesus confronted these people concerning their beliefs, saying that they really didn't perceive the intent of the miracle. Yeah, they saw, they saw a little kid give him some fish and some bread, and he kept taking that fish, and every time he, he, he turned and, and gave the fish out, he turned back, and there was more there. And every time, and they fed the whole 5,000, the whole group. But they didn't catch it. And you know how we know they didn't catch it? They said, look down in verse 28. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe, catch that word that's important throughout this passage, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give us that we may see and believe you? What? Just yesterday, you said, this is the prophet that's coming. And today, they're, they're challenging him. When's the last time? No, we're not in a monarchy. But when's the last time any real authoritative king was ever challenged? It doesn't work that way. If he's a king, you obey him. <coughs> Look at verse 29, which we just read. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. Notice the word. Believes in me. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in the last day. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has everlasting life. What's this thread weaving itself through this tapestry of this chapter? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what God expects from his people. But what else is in this chapter? What was happening? The Jews, however, were stuck in the physical interpretation of his words and stuck with their infatuation with Moses. Look at verse 31. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for somebody to take care of all their physical needs, just the way Moses did for the children of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. Can you top that? You only did it for an afternoon. Moses did it for 40 years. Are you better than Moses? One day they're saying he is the prophet that Moses spoke about that would come into the world. The next day they're saying he's not. They're challenging him. In response to their lack of faith, Jesus words his statements in a way that would be repugnant to the Jews. Unless they accepted him totally, unless they were completely and entirely committed to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, they would take the words that Jesus then said and be repulsed. Look at verses 53 through 56. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat... I'm reading the, the, New American, or the New American Standard. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now, we've already seen that Jesus established belief or faith as the means whereby to fulfill those words. Of course, he was not speaking literally. But if they are dependent on a literal result to those words, that they had to take Jesus' arm and take a bite out of it, that's, that's repulsive. It gets better than that. What's the first result that we see? Well, look at verse 52. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they started walking away. They didn't want to have the Lord Jesus saying what he was saying. They couldn't accept it. They missed the part about faith. 
What was Jesus doing? He was putting them in a crisis of faith. And not only to the multitudes, but look at verses 66 and 60, or 67 through 69. Well, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67. You don't know what to leave to, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. He gets very pointed to the twelve. And he looks them square in the eye. And he says, you're going to leave too? There's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. But the real difference between a true believer and a false believer, when it comes to a crisis of faith, is... The true believer will say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Look at what Peter says. Peter's confused but trusting response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter said, basically, I'm not exactly sure how to respond to this, but I am sure of one thing. You're Messiah. You are the Holy One of God. You are the only means of salvation on this earth. And I trust you to straighten out my confusion. That is a true believer. That is a man or a woman of God. Unless you and I are willing to trust him totally and commit ourselves to him completely without reservation he does not want us professing to be his believers again what does revelation 3:15 says i would that you are cold or hot i'd rather you to be absolutely anti-christian than to sit there thinking and trying to pretend to everybody else that you're a believer and you're really not. And life is full of crises of faith. It's not merely confusing words. Life events. How, and every single one of us, and we'll talk about this later, every single one of us who have lived in Christ for any length of time know that there are times when we're praying and the heavens are brass and our prayers bounce off the ceiling and hit us in the back of the head and we feel left alone, we feel abandoned, we're confused. And that's when we say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but you're right. I don't know why I'm in this situation. Maybe it's my own fault, but I can't even put a finger on why I'm in this situation. If we back up even to this passage that we were just talking about, what do you think the disciples were feeling when they were in the midst of the ship, in the midst of the sea, in the midst of the storm? There by the bid of their Lord. He sent them there. Knowing what they would face. And he had a purpose for it. They didn't know what that purpose was. And you and I won't know what that purpose is when we're in the midst of our storm. 
but we have the same Lord. We have the same God directing our lives. How does the Lord treat false believers? Puts them in a crisis of faith. What's the end result for false believers? Well, turn to John chapter 8. And verse 30. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 59. Again, we're not going to be looking at every single verse. Just hitting the highlights. John chapter 8, verse 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Glorious. Praise the Lord. As the Lord Jesus was speaking, people were were confessing that they trusted this, this prophet, this Messiah. That's great. These people made some sort of commitment of faith to him. And how many people have made some vague commitment of to the Lord Jesus with no thought of repentance from their sin or any idea that they deserve His wrath? How many people call themselves born-again Christians because they've had some sort of experience, but they place their expectations on God rather than throwing themselves at His feet? In reality... A profession of faith in the Lord Jesus saying that we trust in God or in Jesus or in any other thing. That makes no one a Christian. The only way a a person becomes a Christian is for God to do a miracle of regeneration within their heart. The words mean nothing. It is God's work in us that makes a Christian. This is what Jesus told to, said to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Ye must be born again. Yet those who profess to believe object to the very next words that proceed out of Jesus' mouth. We already, back in chapter 8, we already were at verse 30. They put their faith in him. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, you hold to my teaching. You are re- if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We never have been slaves to anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? If they really trusted him, why are they debating with him with what he said? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. There's something more here than than human slavery. Slavery to other humans. And that's slavery to sin. Which is far worse. The... This, the, the discussion between Jesus and the Jews continues to descend. Look at verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil. Now these are people who just a few verses said they believed on him. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. 
Jesus confronts them with the reality of their spiritual status. Even though they professed belief in Jesus, they really were guided and motivated by Satan himself. Therefore, they don't understand him because they do not, they are not followers of God. Sometimes, I know Johnny's confessed this to me. She's witnessing to somebody as clearly and as plainly as she can make it. And they're unmoved. And she feels like saying, why don't you get it? Why don't you understand? Can I... Do I have to stand on my head to get you to understand this? The reason they can't understand it is because they're blinded. Satan hath blinded the hearts of them which believe not on Jesus. It takes the work of God convicting of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to even begin to open a person's eyes. To the truth. And if an individual hears the truth of the word of God proclaimed, even though they might profess to be a Christian, if they see the word of God and they hear the word of God and they blankly reject the word of God, the best thing you can say is that is a dangerous position to take. Quite often, more often than not, the profession is false. In order to prove this all the more clearly to them, he reiterated and emphasized a statement about himself that they had previously rejected. Look back at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. See that uh, phrase in the brackets, the one I claim to be? Scratch that out. That detracts from the meaning of what the Lord Jesus was saying. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they rejected that. Jesus is going to reiterate it in a way that they could not deny what he was saying or ignore it. Look at verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. And that is nothing short of a declaration of absolute deity. He was saying that he was the one in the burning bush standing before Moses saying, I am that I am. You will tell them that I am hath sent you to them. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you don't have to believe that Jesus was God of very God. What did Jesus say? Except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Absolute deity. Incarnate humanity. Do we understand it? We can describe it. Do we understand it? If you can, you're a better man or woman than I am. And the people reacted with predictable violence to what they considered blasphemy. They tried to stone him to death. The people, the very people who in verse 30 said they believed on him, were picking up stones 
to stone him to death by the end of the chapter. But what Jesus succeeding in doing is showing these people who profess to believe in him that they had no business following him. Jesus did not and does not want people to deceive themselves into thinking that they're truly followers of him when they're nothing but false disciples. It is incumbent on us to examine ourselves. As far as lessons are for our lives, number one, Religion is no doubt the single biggest deterrent to salvation known to man. As long as a person has some form of godliness, 2 Timothy 3.5, they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, They become insulated from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm okay. I go to church. I give my money. I do good things. I'm a good person. That insulates them from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It becomes extremely easy to convince ourselves that we are right with God because we do so many religious things. Even true Christians have a tendency to think of of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Well, of course, I'm superior to that other person over there. After all, I have a higher standard of morality. I've experienced forgiveness of sins. Obviously, God likes me better than that unsaved wretch over there. Oh, really? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You're a sinner saved by grace. One of the the things that breaks my heart is to see a Christian who does not or has forgotten where the Lord has taken him from. What the Lord has done for us if he were to let us alone, where would we end up? The same place, if not worse, than where we were. Number two. One of the worst disservices we can do to a person is to seek to convince them that by merely professing faith in Christ, they are guaranteed salvation. Listen very closely, because I say this cautiously. What I mean is that by the mere saying the words, they are guaranteed of heaven. Lord, forgive me for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now I'm ready to go. If those words spring from a heart broken over its sin, desperately seeking God's forgiveness in Christ. Like the publican in the temple, beating his breast, ashamed to even lift his head. The person who says those words, with that motive, walks away forgiven. A son of God, a citizen, an eternal citizen of heaven. However, if those words spring from the lips of a person who's only following some religious novelty, who think, well, that's what everybody does, that's what they're expecting me to do, so I'm going to say it. They walk away unchanged, a hell-bound sinner remaining under God's just condemnation and wrath. It is the heart, that heart of 
repentance and faith in Christ that, that God will take and save that individual. If a person, if we're ever dealing with people and they, they wonder, I don't know if I'm saved. Don't try to convince them that they are. Say, what you may have said or what you may have done in the past evidently wasn't sufficient. Let's make sure. And we'll go from there. Number three. Anyone who has lived any length of time knows that life has its ups and downs. Times when our faith is tried and times when life seems easy. Those times when life gets hard are just as much under the Lord's control and just as much a blessing from His hand as the easy times. But during those times, that's a hard concept to really take hold of. They are by God's design to try us, to test us, to strengthen our faith. They are intended by God to bring us, bring out of us that which He knows is buried deep within us. He knows what's in our hearts. Sometimes there are things deep down inside that we have even hidden from ourselves. Some ugly things that He is trying to bring out with a response in us, and we just have to shake our head. I can't. What possessed me to say that? What caused me to do that? Well, the Lord brought that out of us to confess it, to forsake it, and to go on. Just like the Lord Jesus put the 12 under that same crisis of faith, you're going to leave too? So he does with us. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon is this. Untried faith may be real faith, but it is sure to be small faith. Without difficulties, we will never grow as Paul shows us in Romans 5, 3 through 4. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. When's the last time you ever gloried in tribulation? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience endure experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Paul lays out a clear path of growth caused by trials and tribulations. Finally, number four is incumbent on each and every one of us who profess to be a follower of Jesus to make sure that our lives reflect the reality of salvation. While works can never save us or even complete our salvation, like Paul says to the Galatians, do you think you're going to perfect, you're going to complete what God, the halfway job that God did? No. Nevertheless, if we are indeed a new creature in Christ, if we indeed have be, are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the fruit of that Spirit-infused life will be evident. If it's not there, then we should doubt ourselves. Paul tells us, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. And I'd ask if there's anybody here who might be questioning, who might be wondering, am I really saved? Don't walk through those doors unless you make sure.
Talk to me. Talk to one of the other elders. We'll be glad to sit down with you and answer any questions or doubts or fears that you have.